Welcome to PX16. My name is Jess Noonan and as always I'm joined by my colleague Peter Jewell. Today we're talking with the lovely Jo Garrity from SALT. She's a dancer, a traffic engineer and a director of the newly established engineering firm SALT. Jo has over 15 years experience and is one of the most well-respected engineers in the industry. Just a quick reminder to our listeners to visit our website at www.planningexchange.org for further bios and photos of each of our podcast guests. I'd also like to thank our wonderful sponsor, Maddox Lawyers. If you also have any feedback, please email us on planningexchange at gmail.com. Welcome, Joe. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No worries at all. Are you able to just give our listeners a quick um, overview of your experience? Yes. Um, I've been a traffic engineer for 15 years now and I'm still loving it. Um, I studied civil engineering at uni and, yeah, this is my specialty. I've moved into this. I love maths, I love physics, but I also love people and I think um, traffic engineering is one of those industries that's a little bit niche um, and it's it's just something that's required in, in Australia and something that we're enjoying and I'm enjoying building. So when you were at uni, did you make the conscious decision to be a traffic engineer or did you just think, oh, no, I just want to go into engineering and sort of fell into the traffic side once you got to uni? Um, probably not until my final year and then I decided that it was, you know, um, something that I enjoyed and interested me. But when you're at uni, it's it's very difficult to know until the end what where you're really are going to land. Mm. So t- traffic engineering, it, it's a very gender um, Majority males, there's not many females in traffic engineering. Is that changing? I think it is changing. When I studied, I think there was about 10% females. Um, but I know, you know, in my office at the moment, we've got a, high, a very high proportion of um, females. And I think, you know, it's, it's based on merit. It shouldn't be, you know, about um, percentages, but I think it definitely is increasing. And have you experienced any sort of discrimination or people put you down because you're a woman in in your role? I guess in my earlier years, um, a a lot of the time when I went to meetings, they were male-dominated and it's just part of the industry and part of the learning and growth. Um, And now it's sort of something that I don't really notice. But, yeah, when you're learning and less experienced, you sort of you tend to take everything on board and think about it. I think that's very much the same in planning as well, though, isn't it? It's um, definitely definitely changing, though. Going to meetings now, it's definitely um, a little bit more equal in terms of gender. Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at the top roles for planners in Victoria, they're almost exclusively female now. Mm, that's right. So there's a lot of big transport projects on and there's a lot of talk about big infrastructure rollout. It seems some of those big decisions are rushed and aligned to the election cycle. Do you think that's a fair criticism or...? I think it's a fair observation because, um, like you say, a lot of things are influenced by elections. However, with engineering and planning, most of it is done over a period of time from you know concept through to documentation. That takes time and years of planning. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes that perhaps... Um, you know, the general public unfortunately hasn't been privy to. And, and we're going through a fairly exciting time with all the new technology coming in. We're t- 
the travel patterns and mobile phone data can sort of you can you can get real time maps of what's happening in the transport system. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. That's increasingly becoming more popular, and there's more options, and the technology is getting better. I think we've still got a fair way to go, um, particularly in Australia where we're trying to piece together everything. But I know, for example, in Sydney there's a number of apps that are already up and running and they're linking ferries, um, buses, trains, the whole system. So we're definitely getting there. And how does that influence your everyday work? I mean, how has that changed, I suppose, from when you first started out in this industry? I think it's um, helping shift the modal transport, obviously. When I first started, there was no such thing as an app um, connecting people and there was a lot more focus on cars and parking. But now, I mean, I even see when dealing with local councils that that high-level policy of modal shift is really filtering down now to officer level, which is really pleasing to see. Uh, Just to play devil's advocate... How much in Melbourne? Uh, sorry, Australian cities are set up car based. But unless you're sort of in the inner city, a lot of alternative traffic uh, types don't seem to work because of the distances involved and because of the hard infrastructure that's in place. Is that? Am I being too pessimistic? No, I think that's that's exactly right. I mean, we've Melbourne is spread out over a number of kilometres in each sort of direction, so. We have a lot of challenges around linking people and acknowledging that people don't want to wait too long to get from A to B or to C. And that's why, you know, choosing the private car has traditionally been the preferred method. So we really have to think about distance, travel times, weather protection and things like that. Is that where things like group transport, um, i.e., you know, almost like an Uber bus or um, group transport in other forms um, might become more popular in coming years? Yeah, definitely. I what think was the term you used the other bongo. day, Pete? There was a, a, bongo, bongo. a bongo, bongo bus. The bongo, bongo bus, bus. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that term. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity to bring that more into Australia and it can connect people door to door. In, but also we have to change people's mindset slightly so that they're more open to that ride-sharing Joe, do you think – I think people are very, very adaptable mm. if there's alternatives. They grasp it. I think probably one of the main problems is the regulatory environment. If you look at Uber, they just they just came onto the scene. They didn't ask for approval. Mm. Then they had this ongoing battle with governments. So, That's right. And they've since dominated. Yeah, mm. because people have adapted to it. So That's do you right. think it's – we need to change people's attitudes or do we need to give people the tools to be able to do it? I think we give them the tools and we make it uh, easy to use. I mean, one of the reasons Ubrix is so successful is that it's very easy to use. It's two clicks. Um, so, you know, people are willing to try new things as long as they're at their fingertips and they're, you know, aligned with the technology that their ex- expectations are. So just going back to that bongo bus concept, you could have an informal travel pattern where you had the, the bus or the van go through the suburbs, people on an app, jump on and... Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, I just get this image of a whole heap of people on a bus playing musical instruments and drums. (laughs) (laughs) Funny you say that. I I was in Africa about 10 years ago and that's one of the most memorable experiences (laughs) because I got in a little minibus, a bongo bus, and I think 
well, I think there was 15 people in there. But no one had the drums, but I think that would be quite... Maybe that's the reason people aren't using them. There's no drums. There's no drums. <laughs> so this interactive mobile technology that helps people experience the cities and get them, get them around, do we need to change our mindset? Because we're very much a fixed rail model or that's the best. Do we need to, do we need to bring an informality to the whole thought process? Yeah, I could see the merit there. Um, I guess it's just about figuring out what that could be and how um, how Melbourne can cater for that because, you know, um, these things cost money and, um, yeah, it's a good, really good point but I'm not sure myself yet how we might do that. Well, couldn't we have a prize? Couldn't PTV or someone say, right, here's $100,000, design us an app that's going to make things easier for people to get around the others. Yeah, that's a brilliant idea. And there's a lot of, you know, smart people around that would be should be able to do that. That's what we do at Planning Exchange, so, we just bring those ideas out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now one Let's other proposition them. <laughs> yeah, why not? Mm. Um, one other common theme that we've spoken about in quite a few of our interviews has been driverless cars. How do you see that unfolding in the coming years? I think it's definitely going to happen. Um, it's just a matter of time and how Melbourne and Australia in particular might cater for that. Mm. I know there's some challenges at the moment around the laws um, here and how, um, you know, it's, it's all great when these driverless cars work, but if something goes wrong, then who's responsible? And I think at the moment we're just trying to work through that. And I think also thinking about freight is probably something which would really benefit from driverless vehicles because mm-hmm. there's a lot of issues now around, you know, these people working very hard and fatigue and things like that. So that would really be a good outcome as well in that in that arena. Driverless trains perhaps as well. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. Trucks, trains. Well, well they, I, I was in Singapore and they've got driverless trams that stop automatically in the stops. Mm. So that technology is all there. Yeah, to me that seems like a more logical um, way to proceed because there's less risk, I suppose, on those sorts of um, freight lines and train lines. Um, there's not as many people on the road, not having to contend with so many vehicles, and I don't know. It seems like a logical first step. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and it's a lot of benefits as well from consolidating vehicles and um, mitigating risk and, you know, likelihood of collisions and things like that, mm. we might gain back more space on our roads. Well, you think about the horrible road toll and all the people, the multiple people who are injured, there might not be a TAC, non-Victorian listeners, that's the Transport Accident Commission, not be a, not might not be a TAC in 20 years' time. Yeah, that's a really good point. Mm. Things like that. I mean, there's going to be a lot of changes. Um with driverless cars and other technologies. There's a lot of work to be done, I think, but we'll get through it. Another thing we spoke about with um, Brian Haratzis, I think it was from Macroplan, was whether or not there's any risk in in having driverless cars that will end up with more traffic on the road because people will um, will use the car, I suppose, as a way to get from A to B, but also as an excuse not to get public transport because it's more comfortable, they can work from the back of their car, mm. those yeah. sorts of things. And, and also, picking up on Jess's point, the, 
people can commute longer periods mm. because they can work in the car, they can watch DVDs, they can mm. sleep in the car. That's mm. right. And it might address one of the current challenges in Melbourne whereby we've got a lot of people who are commuting in and out of the city mm. a lot and it might mean that, you know, out of suburban areas are better connected and they've got more opportunity and, you know, things like that was, will benefit the economy, the community um, and just making better connections. And what about um, bikes, mopeds, motorbikes and those sorts of things? How do you see those forms of transport unfolding? I think that there's a lot of countries in the world that do it very successfully and there's no reason why we can't do that in Australia as well. Mm. Um, we do have challenges around the the, the arterial roads we have here and speed. However, there are other alternatives, I guess, to providing infrastructure and safe mechanisms to encourage mopeds and scooters. Do you think there's also an attitude problem? Um, yes. I think, you know, back to the traditional private car driver, it's we really have to encourage open-mindedness between cars, motorbikes and mm -hmm. mopeds. Um, and I know there's a lot of work being done at the moment. I think it might be by the TAC trying to just build that awareness. But, um, you know, for example, there could be a facility where in, in, in a Melbourne that there's special um, infrastructure for, to encourage mopeds and not just for adults but for even people that are just starting out. Mm. Well, well, Joe, in Europe, you know, school kids, their mode of transport is a moped. Part pedal power, part small engine. Mm -hmm. And they seem to be able to do it well there. Yes. So, yeah, that's a really good point because there's rules and laws at the moment around the age that people can ride these vehicles. Um, but if we, you know, think a bit more widely, then yes, definitely. And that would also encourage less teenagers to feel the need to go and get their driving licence and buy a car. Mm. And what about regional areas? I mean, they have typically never had, I guess, the, the mass population to um, enable a lot of public transport. Do you do much work in those areas? Have you seen any emerging trends come out of any regional areas recently? Regional areas are um, uh, slightly different, I guess, to the work that we do in metropolitan Melbourne. Mm. And I think there's... There's a lack of um, understanding sometimes to know what those challenges are. For example, we've done work in Bansdale, you know, East Gippsland Shire where, you know, the, the lifestyle there that people choose is slightly different to metropolitan Melbourne and we can't expect people to jump out of their car and suddenly get on a bicycle mm. because um, maybe that's why they chose to live there. So we have done a lot of work and it's a very, very slow shift towards non-private vehicle use. And also I don't think in every scenario it's it should be expected. Mm. Joe, what are some of the myths about traffic engineering? <clears throat> you know, in the recent decades they've had a pretty hard time as being more uh, concerned about roads rather than people. What do you say to those critics? I think, look, I, um, I appreciate the perception because Traditionally, and back to what I was saying before, there has been a really big shift from private car usage and building car parks to what's happening now. So, um, 
it's not just about cars, it's about public transport, it's about pedestrians and bicycles and connecting all those methods. So, um, yeah, look, there are a few myths, but that's, that's fine. One thing I did want to ask you, and this is slightly off topic, um, is we're starting to see a bit of a shift of the typical car park or multi-level car park in our CBD areas being converted into other uses because they're no longer being used to the same capacity that they once were, whether that be because of the cost, sometimes it can cost you $80 to park for a day in the CBD, um, or whether it's simply because people are catching more PT, they're using Uber, they're walking, they're riding. What what are your thoughts around that? I agree. I think it's it's showing that there has been and there is a shift from private car usage to those other methods. Mm. And Uber, as we said before, very successful and it just makes makes the day easier for people who perhaps have to go to meetings and things like that. They don't have to fund a car space. Mm. Um, and the cost as well, I mean, it, it does have an effect and there is a tipping point. So I think it's a really good outcome if we're seeing that change. Mm. And those car parks can be used for more, you know, give back to the community and facilities for the, for the CBD. Mm. I think that's great. And it's some of the most well-located land in the CBD really, isn't it? Exactly. Mm. So, Joe, these technology improvements, they're, they're, getting, they're squeezing more out of the capacity and infrastructure we've got. Is that, is that that's part of it? Um, yeah, no, I think that's right. I think um, we're getting more out of the land and more out of, you know, the opportunities that we have. So we're moving in the right direction. And how much does research inform what you do? I mean, what do you look for new ideas and uh, future trends and what's over the horizon? And also what's worked and what hasn't worked in the past? Sure. Um, I guess as engineers it becomes part of our daily routine to do the research and trying to understand and solve problems and come up with new solutions. So on a day-to-day basis, I think we do that. Um, Looking back at the past, I think we could definitely see trends and what um, information we can gather to help inform decisions and what people are comfortable with accepting and what they're not. And how do you see things evolving over the next 20 years in the industry? Or in transport generally? <laughs> I think there's going to be a lot of changes. I think we have to keep pushing ourselves and our the youth and everybody to build on um, the knowledge that we have and what's possible here. Um, you know, there's new technologies. There's something that's just sort of emerging now called, called the Hyperloop, but I know there's been a lot of effort putting into, put into that to try and get it off the ground, pardon the pun, um, <laughs> because... You know, something like that could move people even faster than aeroplanes and the trains that we have now. Can you just explain what that is, Joe? Um, well, you know, this is just the research that I'm doing at the moment, but um, it's a technology that's being developed at the moment in America and I know there's a one of the founders of the idea is a guy called Musk. Oh, and uh, Egon Musk. Yeah. Yeah. And he's even thinking of putting a test track in Texas. So... You know, and there's other things. Is that like the suction? Suction. Yes, thing? that's right. So you, you, you're in one end, and you get sucked across to the other end. Yes. Hundreds of hundreds of kilometres. Exactly. Who's going to be the first test pilot? 
Oh, well, I'll have a go. <laughs> <laughs> but this thing travels over a thousand kilometers an hour. So wow. it's, it's amazing. I want to be at that council meeting when you suggest <laughs> the use of one of them. That'll be a fun one. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Joe, can you just tell us a little bit about Salt? I mean, you started, and, and not so much about the company, but how you start, how you started it, and how you built it up. What are some of the pressures on, or some of the inspirations starting up a new business? Yeah, I mean, it was um, been very memorable, and I wouldn't change anything. I joined um, my co-director, James, just over a couple of years ago and, you know, we together have built the business from the two of us to I think we're now nearly 20 people. So challenges have just been, you know, the being a new brand in the industry and just gaining that support and recognition from from our peers and, um, yeah, I guess also just making sure that we employ good people and, you know, we've got a great team and we stand by our core values, service, approachability, loyalty and transparency. So, yeah, it's been a lot of fun and I'm looking forward to A lot of next. hard work though, surely, Joe. Yeah, a lot of hard work, a lot of um, challenges, late nights and, you know, getting back to the roots of what I did when I was a graduate, but that's fine. That's what it takes. Mm, you've done a great job. Thank you. Hmm. And what do you love about engineering and how do you switch off from work? Um, Besides the dancing. <laughs> <laughs> no, if you could tell us a bit more about your dancing, that would be sure. amazing. Uh, it's, it's something I've done since I was a, you know, a five-year-old. So it really, I mean, I love music and it's, it's really good to take your mind off the, the busyness of the day. And mm. I think, you know, most of us would appreciate that, that exercise is very important. What kind of dancing is it? Jazz. Jazz, yeah. um, tap dancing and ballet. So a bit of, yeah, they're my sort of my favourites. Amazing. Yeah. We can't let tap dancing um, disappear. I no, think, so definitely very not. Very special art, yeah. Mm. Well, listeners, we've, been, we've had the pleasure of uh, the company of Joe Garrity, one of Melbourne's most impressive traffic engineers. Thank you very much, Joe, and thank you, Jess. Thank you. Thank you.